come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome to the sixth episode of Journey with a Cinephile. As always, I am your guide along this, David Garrett Jr. And for this episode, which is my 3rd of December, which is my year-end roundup as well as holiday horror episode, we are going to have four mini-reviews of this year's The Perfection, American Psycho, 1980s Terror Train, as well as Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and after that I'll have two featured reviews for Pontypool, as well as this month's Into the Dark episode on Hulu of A Nasty Piece of Work. What I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to our first musical break before we get into the mini-reviews. I hope you enjoy. Alrighty, welcome back. Now, my first mini-review of this week is going to be for a film that was released earlier this year in The Perfection. It was actually made in 2018, though. It is directed by Richard Shepard, who also was a co-writer along with Eric C. Charmello and Nicole Snyder. This is a drama horror thriller from the United States. 
It is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being when a troubled musical prodigy, Charlotte, seeks out Elizabeth, the new star pupil of her former school. The encounter sends both musicians down a sinister path with shocking consequences. Now, I'm going to do this without spoilers since I'm not going to make this a featured review. I do think this is a good setup. It doesn't play its hand too early. We see that Charlotte, who's played by Allison Williams, gives up her life to make sure that she can take care of her sick mother. And we get the hint that she is bothered by it. We get quick flashes that as a child, she wasn't overly excited about what was happening to her. And we see images of her screaming. And we also get images of somebody in a hospital room. What I like though is that it's not necessarily the reasons that we think. At the reveal, it is pretty heartbreaking what happened to her and what is actually going on here. And I would say this is a film that I think you need to experience and not know what's happening going into it though, for sure. And there's also an aspect to this where Charlotte and Lizzie, after they befriend each other with Lizzie being played by Logan Browning, that they're in China for this little vacation that they go on together. Now, Charlotte cannot speak Mandarin, which is just terrifying to be in a foreign country without the ability to communicate. And with Lizzie ends up becoming sick, that she can't speak because she just can't think about what she's doing, just makes it terrifying idea for me. This comes in paced at about 90 minutes, which I think is good. It doesn't waste any time introducing the characters to us and building the story. I don't necessarily like the editing though. There's a couple times where we see things play out and then it rewinds to show us what's really happening. I've seen other films do this type of idea better and I wish they would have went more of that route because I got a little bit annoyed with how they present it here. There's also a lot of flashbacks which I like the information that they're presenting but I think they go to that well too many times. I did end up liking the ending though and I like how there is a little thing on the poster where one of the letters is backwards it makes so much sense after you see how everything plays out so i did dig that aspect of it and i just like seeing these characters getting their comeuppance about what is happening here but it is a tense ride to get to that for me now i know not everybody felt this way but this is something that i felt did work though thought the acting was good williams just is so well at her performance and it's so subtle and if I'm gonna be honest I've seen her do this in other film and I think that really works for me I like that the more we learn about her the more that you kind of at one point are against her but then as you learn even more I personally started to decide with her just a lot of that is just seeing the depths of the damage that was done to her Browning was also really good and I just enjoyed that we see her at the top of her world and then it's all shattered pretty much at the midway point but it's interesting though to see what she does after the fact now Steven Weber is in this as Anton who is the head of the school that both of these young women went to I love the, th the facade of his character the more we learn about him though the less you like and I thought that was pretty good Elena Huffman plays his wife Paloma her character is really interesting along with the two teachers that are in this film with them being thesis played by mark canborg and jeffrey who is graham duffy i thought they did well with the rest of the cast and rounding out what this film needed something i did have a slight issue with are the effects i'm a little bit forgiving after i know how everything plays out as i didn't really mind the cgi though once we get to the reveal because it does make a little bit of sense and the practical effects that we get here though are really good it's really at the climax, though, that makes me kind of be a little bit more forgiving, and I'm just down for how things played out, and I do think this is shot well. Uh, the soundtrack, not necessarily one I'll listen to outside of seeing this one, but being that this is a part musical and surrounding musicians, it does work. I thought the cello that we get sounds realistic and sounded good for what I assume cellos should sound like. Now them playing music does raise tension in some scenes, which I did like that. So that worked and fit for what they needed. I just felt now, just to wrap this up, that this film just ticked a lot of boxes for me. Um, thought the acting was good, story I thought was pretty solid. Some issues with the editing, there is a good runtime though. I'm not the biggest fan of the effects, but they do make sense. And as I've said, the practical ones are good. 
the soundtrack fit for what they were needed. I just found that overall this is going to be just above average for me. Probably going to come up short on my year-end list, and I came in with a 7 out of 10 here. Alright, and the next film is going to be American Psycho, which I actually saw this at the Gateway Film Center on the big screen as part of Fright Club's monthly movie club that they do. This came out in 2000. It is directed by Mary Heron. It comes from the novel by Brett Easton Ellis, and Mary Heron co-wrote this along with Guinevere Turner. This is a crime drama from the United States and Canada. It is currently sitting on a 7.6 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is a wealthy New York investment banking executive, Patrick Bateman, hides his alternative psychopathic ego from his co-workers and friends as he delves deeper into his violent hedonistic fantasies. Now I'm going to go ahead and admit I've seen this a few times and I think it's helped me to fully understand what I've been seeing throughout these you know different viewings and I also believe listening to podcasts which the lead, latest one that really comes out to me is Duncan from over the podcast under the stairs helped me to kind of think of some ways of looking at this and I definitely employed that this time around the first one or issue I want to address here is if this is horror or not I definitely feel like it falls into this category we have a psychopath that is on the edge of sanity and he's going around killing people not all of this is done on screen, but it just has a dark feel to it. And seeing Patrick as he slips into madness is something that I found to be really enjoyable, with, of course, Patrick Bateman being played by Christian Bale. What I wanted to move to next is all of these male characters here are pretty much seeming like the same person. Now, of course, they're not. We see that each one of them is different, but none of them really have an identity. This latest viewing... I was with my girlfriend and she pointed out that they all look the same and pretty much all have the same interests, which is exactly what I think they're going for. It's really just kind of shown that they're a stereotype of these people from the 1980s, where they have really nothing personal about them that sets them apart, where these guys literally all just drink, you know, do cocaine, and just want to have reservations at the most popular restaurants where they overpay for food that is tiny. And kind of going from there since we can't really tell them apart we have the core group of people are Patrick, Timothy, Craig and David and they all know each other but Paul thinks that Patrick is somebody else and it's even crazier too is that Patrick speaks to his lawyer and he doesn't even seem to know who he is and the lawyer even thinks that he went out to dinner with Paul when Paul was supposed to be you know missing or deceased and to take it even further these guys are all sleeping with each other's fiancés and none of them really care about that that's happening as they all seem to know that it is. They're all about just maintaining this lifestyle and they're all horribly pretentious as well as misogynistic where at the end of the movie I had to look over and just say, yeah, you're not supposed to like any of these characters. But now since we've already kind of talked about them a little bit, I have to go to the acting where... First off, I just want to commend Bale. His performance here is unreal. He plays the character like this is actually him, but there's almost a level of humor underneath it that he's not going for, but it's just comical to see this guy's beliefs and what he thinks and just what he tries to do. Cause, I mean, he starts off as a sociopath, and it's interesting because this came out before the show Dexter did. I'm not really sure in how close to like the comics when those came out to this or like the novel or anything like that but it's just really interesting to how similar those are and we even get the voiceover narration in both of them to kind of give us a better look inside of these people's minds now the more that patrick kills the more he loses control but in the end we don't know if any of the stuff he actually did happen or not and since this isn't going to be a future review, I'm not going to really go into spoilers what I think really happened. But there is that questioning at the end of what is real and what is not. Now, since I've already talked about the characters, I should just go ahead and they, the core group that I said all their first names from the film, but it's Justin Thoreau, Josh Lucas, and Bill Sage all play the guys that hang out with Patrick. And they all also work together. Now, what is interesting, though, is how well they can play a mirror in each other. Um, this also features Chloe Sevigny, who is interesting in the role of Jean, who is Patrick's secretary. She's clearly attracted to him. It's fitting because she's into men who aren't really available because 
Patrick is engaged to be married to Reese Witherspoon's character. Jean just really wants to be part of this world, I think. So she's playing on her fantasies and attraction to Patrick, trying to get into that. Kind of going from there, Witherspoon as well as Samantha Mathis are also very similar as then they're mirroring in that they are fiancés of men in this clique. None of them really have any sort of depth to them and they kind of just go about their own lives and their own world without really thinking about much. And I don't even necessarily know if they love the person that they're with. It's just kind of them going about the status quo. William Defoe is great in this as the detective Donald Kimball. What I think is interesting is reading up about how he filmed his scenes with three different expressions where he thinks that Patrick did it, thinks that Patrick didn't do it, and just not knowing and how they intersplice these different things so it just throws it off but i like about that though is i almost see that as from patrick's point of view where he doesn't know what this guy knows so it's unnerving him as he's trying to read him and then the last thing just to throw out there is matt ross and jared leto as well as the rest of the cast really rounded out this film for what was needed i think that it's paced very well it has a runtime of about 100 minutes and to be honest it doesn't really feel like it we just move through and things just get progressively worse and worse as he descends into madness, which definitely worked for me. And going on top of that, his acts of violence get progressively more aggressive as he goes. I really dig the ending and the implications that could be coming from it, as it's both terrifying and kind of sickening of how things seem to have played out. But it actually has a interesting look at how the rich in our country can kind of get away with things. But I don't necessarily want to delve too much into the politics of that. But we have seen people who, you know, come from money be able to get away with things. The effects I thought were really good. It's not necessarily gory. Uh, we do get blood, though, that looks pretty real. And I think some of the attacks that Patrick does. Now, some of them are off screen, but the aftermath of it does look good. I do think that it builds some tension through some of these scenes as well, which, you know, gets my anxiety going. And it's just weird to see how lost with, you know, no real touch of reality that he has. And it's shot very well also. I couldn't come through this without talking about the soundtrack. I love that Patrick is a connoisseur of music from the era, but it's just so interesting because it's music that I kind of remember growing up, but I was a little bit young. But it's mostly pop music and him just dissecting it, which is kind of funny because some of the things he says is that he's into, you know, executions and dissecting women. That he does seem like somebody who doesn't necessarily like the things that he's talking about, but because he is so learns everything inside and out, that that's what he associates being that he, you know, really loves these type of things. And I mean, some of the songs that are used while he commits violent acts is interesting because it builds dread, but it's also not something that's creepy. It's more of bright, happy music that are just being coupled with it. I thought really worked. Now, just kind of wrap this up. This is one that I appreciate more and more every time that I see it. Such a great character study of someone who seems to have it all, but just doesn't have the you know human emotion that normal people do. Bale really brings Patrick's character to life, I think. I think the cast around him is, you know, great in bringing up what they need to do. It is paced where I never find it boring, and I thought the ending is great. The effects are really good, even though we don't necessarily get a lot of them. Soundtrack fit for what was needed. And I will say, I do think this benefits from multiple watches to really piece everything together. And I would even recommend, if you really enjoy it, to kind of look into some of these things. To kind of make sure that you're looking at everything and, you know, possible ways i know not everybody's going to do that but that's just my recommendation there i find this to be great for sure i would recommend it to horror and non-horror fans alike and i'm actually going to come in this with a 10 out of 10 all right and the next film that i checked out this week was terror train from 1980 this is directed by roger spottiswood Written by T.Y. Drake, it stars Ben Johnson, Jamie Lee Curtis, and Hart Bachner. This is a horror thriller from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 5.9 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. The synopsis is three years after a prank that went terribly awry. The six college students responsible are targeted by a mass killer at a New Year's Eve party aboard a moving train. Now, the reason I selected this film 
to check out was staying in par with my Christmas slash New Year holiday theme. And when I was going through a list of films that I had never seen, because this is actually a first time watch for me, this was one that caught my eye as I knew that would fall into this category. And I actually got turned on to this first because there's a very loose remake just called Train. Now, having seen both, I can tell that really the only thing that they have in common is that they both take place on a train. And I do believe both are in the same type of year, like around the holiday, Christmassy, wintry time frame. But it's been a while since I've seen Train, but I just know that it had turned me on to checking this one out. And I've also heard about this on podcasts, so I figured I might as well give this a viewing. Now, what I find interesting is that this is a very early slasher film. It came out, like I said, in 80, so this is the same year as Friday the 13th and a year after Halloween. But this one actually felt more like a giallo to me than it necessarily does a slasher. The killer isn't necessarily wearing black gloves, but they're masked. And what I do like is that they're constantly hiding and they're switching costumes to people that they've picked off which is interesting because you never know who the killer is and it's a good way to disguise themselves because the people know who is wearing that specific costume and don't realize that it's actually somebody else underneath. I will say though, I am confused by the theme of this New Year's Eve party. Everybody is wearing masks and costumes, but you'd assume that being a New Year's Eve party, it'd be more of like a masquerade with those types of masks. But this is literally like a Halloween party that's being celebrated on New Year's Eve. I almost feel like it's a cheap excuse to allow the killer to hide who they are, and especially to prolong the mystery, which, like I said, I like how it plays out, but this is just something that made me question what I was seeing as it was going on. And I will admit, I did have some issues with the pacing. We get the crux of the story right there in the beginning, which I thought was good, where we see a bonfire where... The pledges of this fraternity have to wear these goofy-looking beanies, and they have, this bonfire party that they're at is where those that still haven't been kind of – who haven't been fully accepted into the fraternity have to get laid in order to remove their beanies. Well, this guy named Kenny goes up to a room with Jamie Lee Curtis, and she's supposed to be the one that's going to – or is going to you know have sex with him, and there's a prank that is done done where Doc is behind it. And he ends up freaking out and pretty much ends up being in the hospital from that point on. And a lot of people don't even know what happened to him after that. The problem, though, becomes is that at the train station, we get Ed, who is dressed up as Groucho Marx's death pretty early on. And then we get a long stretch where we don't. Now, I don't mind that during this stretch, we're actually getting introduced to the characters, so we get to know them. But then a lot of the kills are actually done off screen, so it kind of bored me a little bit if I'm going to be honest. And I will have to say, they also focus on this weird relationship that these couples have. Now, Doc and Mitchie have an understanding where it's pretty much an open relationship. But Doc seems to want to sabotage Mo, who is now seeing Elena, who is Jamie Lee Curtis's relationship. And I don't really understand what is going on there. I'm assuming since it came out in 80 that they're still playing on the 70s thoughts of free love. It's just in my, you know, 2019 brain, it's hard for me to wrap around what is going on here and how these people are all as promiscuous as they are. And I will say, this film does pick up as it goes on, and I think by the end I was, you know, back on track with what they're trying to say here. So that does help me as well. As for the acting, I like that the conductor is Carney. He's played by Ben Johnson, which when I was kind of looking him up a little bit, is an old like Western actor. I thought he does well. He knows a little bit of magic, so he kind of uses it as a way to befriend his customers that are on the train. And he just has a good personality overall. As I was saying, Elena is Jamie Lee Curtis. This is after you know she's busted her chops in Halloween, and I think she's pretty solid here. Uh, not her best performance, but I think she's a more confident actor in this one for sure. Doc is played by Hart Bachner. He is such a jerk, and I think it works for this. It makes him a distinct character, and he was one that I pretty much wanted to see him get his comeuppance because he doesn't really take responsibility for what he did in the past and just continues to kind of be a jerk. I do think it's funny that the magician here is played by real-life magician David Copperfield, and we actually get to see a little bit of his act. Mitchie's played by Sandy Curry. 
I thought she did a good job, and I was actually kind of surprised as it goes on that she pretty, comes off pretty promiscuous, which didn't necessarily see coming, but we do see some heartfelt interactions between her and Elena. Mo is played by Timothy Weber. Thought he did a solid job. Uh, we get Jackson, played by Anthony Sherwood. Ed has the best costume of anybody, and he's portrayed by Howard Busgang. He's the one in the Groucho Marx, which I love when the killer dons that costume because I almost wish he would have wore it longer because that is one that I really dug. Uh, the effects that we get here I thought look good. My only issue is that we don't get a lot of them. We don't get to see much. It's mostly just the aftermath. The blood looked good, and as I've been talking about you know, throughout this, is the killer does as well. It's just a film where a lot of the deaths happen off screen, so I just kind of wanted to see a bit more. And that's why I almost don't feel like it's necessarily a slasher because a lot of this does happen off screen. The setting is also creepy being that it's on a moving train so it's difficult to get off. So I like that we have a reason why they're trapped together like this. Now with that said, I'm glad that I finally saw this one but if I'm going to be honest I was a bit let down. I like the concept, the look of the killer I dig, and the setting also works really well. The aftermath of the death scenes look solid. The problem is I just want to see more if I'm going to be honest. The acting was pretty solid across the board. I personally feel like this plays more like a giallo than a slasher, but I did find this to be a tad bit boring if I'm going to be honest. It does pick up though as time goes by, and I do think that it builds towards an ending that caught my interest. The soundtrack really didn't stand out to me, but it never took me out of it either. Overall I'll say this is slightly above average if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I still enjoyed it, I just wanted a bit more overall. So my rating here is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. Alright, and the last film that I watched this week, speaking that there was a Friday the 13th, so I decided to watch Friday the 13th, the final chapter. This came out in 1984. This is directed by Joseph Zito. It is based on characters from Victor Miller, Ron Kurz, Martin Kit Rosser, Carol Watson, based off of a story by Bruce Hademi Sakao, and also based on characters from Sean S. Cunningham, but he is uncredited. And the screenplay is written by Barney Cohen. It stars Eric Anderson, Judy Aronson, and Peter Barton. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 6.0 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd. And this is one that I usually used to watch a lot growing up. This would always seem to be on the movie channels, especially around Friday the 13th. So I actually, this time around, when I started it, I kind of just settled right in and definitely very familiar to me as I was watching this. And the synopsis is, after being mortally wounded and taken to the morgue, murderer Jason Voorhees, who is portrayed by Ted White and Tom Savini for a scene in this one, he spontaneously revives and embarks on a killing spree as he makes his way back to his home at Camp Crystal Lake. Honestly, I was saying, this one I have a big soft spot for as this actually starts what is considered the Jarvis trilogy, as in this case we have Tommy Jarvis being played by Corey Feldman. Now I tried to temper my nostalgia a bit when I came into this one and try to watch it for the first time with a critical eye, but to be honest I still really enjoy this one. We get an interesting group of characters that are pretty diverse and I actually feel connected with them so before they, when they start getting picked off. I feel bad for them, even though I do want to see how Jason is going to you know, kill them in this one. If you can do that in a slasher film, you have me on board. Going from there, I love that for continuity's sake, it picks up right where the last one left off. It doesn't really violate anything from what I can tell, as Jason is laying dead, or what we consider to be dead, in the barn from the third film. He gets taken to the morgue where he kills the morgue attendant... Axel, as well as the nurse uh, Morgan, when they're the two like night staff that are, you know, around where he's at. The only thing I did kind of find a little bit weird is this hospital, much like you'd see in like Halloween 2, does seem a little bit desolate. Where at least that one there seemed to be other people that were kind of working in different little areas. But this one I only really see these two after the two ambulance drivers leave. And being that this came out in 84, I will say I like how they finally kill off Jason. And I say that with quotes. Even though we know that there are seven more or so that come out after this. But I do like what it could set up here with Tommy Jarvis seemed to be kind of losing his mind in trying to, you know, defeat him for the final time here. I will say I think the pacing of this was really good. 
it doesn't waste any time establishing you know where we're at where it's picking up at and then going from there and I like that he's you know making his way back to his hometown at Camp Crystal Lake what is good about this though is the original one is supposed to be set on Friday the 13th the second one takes place a few months later and then these ones all kind of take place you know within the next like week or a few days you know after the events of the second one so it's interesting that this doesn't actually take place on that friday but regardless of that i like that it goes into a solid slasher here where we periodically get kills and people keep branching off so the others like the other people have no idea that it's happening until we get to that you know climactic thing where jason starts to stage the bodies to terrify others and kind of talking about the characters, I do think the acting in this is pretty strong for a film like this. Now, I will say, you're not going to get Oscar-worthy performances in a slasher, but we do get some character development and depth that makes it, you know, good to me. Like, for instance, I think it's interesting that we introduce that Feldman as Tommy is a... He ends up becoming the main character, but that isn't until the end. I like that they establish that he's into making monster masks as it fits for what he does to distract Jason later on. And I also like that Rob, who is Eric Anderson, I like that he introduces that he's a hunter that is out there to kill bears, but he's actually there for a whole other reason. And I thought that was kind of a cool way to introduce his character you know, later on at the reveal. I like that we get two friends that are the opposite in character in in Aronson playing Samantha who is a young woman with a reputation where her best friend Sarah who is Barbara Howard is the exact opposite where she's still a from what I gather still a virgin but Samantha does give her some kind of pointers on what to do since she since Samantha is paired off with with Paul who's played by Clyde Hayes and then Doug is off with Sarah, who he is played by Peter Barton. I find these characters to all be pretty interesting and play off each other pretty well. Now we also get Crispin Glover here, who plays a guy with low self-esteem and his girlfriend recently broke up with him. Crispin is playing Jimmy Mortimer and he has some of the best dance moves that I've ever seen and I'm pretty sure if you've never even seen this film you've seen at least the gif of it, which is, you know, definitely worth it. But then his best friend is Ted, played by Lawrence Monoson, which is interesting here though because he is overconfident and I like how their whole dynamic plays out with the two twins of Tina and Terry who are portrayed by Camila Moore and Carrie Moore. But there's just all these characters that I just think work so well together and as I said, make for interesting people that get picked off by Jason in this film. Next I'll move this to talking about the effects, which when I saw that Tom Savini came back for this one as he wasn't a big fan that they made a sequel to the original where he did the effects on that one. But I do like that he came back because if he didn't like the idea but he was willing to you know, kill off the idea of Jason even though it doesn't necessarily how it plays out. But the kills look great. They're done practically. I love the staging of the bodies as well. And it's just shot solid in my opinion overall and I have no issues there. Um, the soundtrack is good. Harry Manfredini came back to do the score here as he's done, I believe, all of the ones up to this point as well. We get the, you know, normal theme of that is, you know, definitely iconic now. But I think the songs that he selects throughout it help to build tension and does really well here for what was needed. So now with that said, I understand that there's flaws to this. This is really one of my favorites in the series, if I'm going to be honest. Part of that comes from nostalgia, while I also think there's some distinct characters that I connect with. So when Jason starts picking them off, it gives me somewhat of an emotional connection. We get good kills. I think it's paced in a way where it doesn't waste time and the tension builds throughout. The effects look great. And although not the best soundtrack in the series, I think it's pretty solid overall. I feel like this could have been a good end of the series if they wanted to go that way. But I don't blame them as they start, you know, the Jarvis trilogy here. So I personally think this is a good movie and give it an 8 out of 10 overall. Now with that said, I'm going to go ahead and kick over to the trailer for the first of my two featured reviews, which is going to be for Pontypool. What you are hearing is an actual radio broadcast. 
It is the only recording of the event. Roadblocks preventing people from leaving and entering the area. Everybody is under quarantine. Blood! Blood! We still do not have an official version of these events, and it's very difficult at this moment to get a fix on what has happened. Oh, God! They cut into our signal. Ken? And their, their eyes. He's looking at me. For your safety, please avoid contact with family members and restrain from the following. All terms of endearment. For greater safety, Do not translate this message. Do not translate. Just listen to me. All right, and for my first feature review for this episode is going to be Pontypool. This comes from 2008. It is directed by Bruce McDonald, and it comes from a novel by Tony Burgess, who also was the writer of the screenplay. It stars Stephen McCaddy, Lisa Howell, and Georgina Riley. This is a fantasy horror thriller from Canada. It is currently sitting on a 6.6 .6 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is a radio host interprets the possible outbreak of a deadly virus which infects the small Ontario town that he is stationed in. Now this was a film that was on my list of ones to check out when I heard about podcasts talking about it. It actually really intrigued me because I'm a fan of zombies in general and this movie in my initial listening to what people were saying sounded very similar to that so I definitely wanted to give this a viewing. Also in a encyclopedia of horror films that I'm working through to kind of make sure that I am, you know, well-rounded in all my viewings. So that was another one where I first heard about this. Now we start off here in the voice of the lead, Grant Mazzy, who's played by McHattie, as he's telling about a missing cat named Honey. Now, at first I was a little bit thrown off because all we get is just the sound waves of it before we finally get that it's, or we get him driving to work and it's snowing pretty heavy out, which is the reason that I selected this as a winter themed film it takes place on Valentine's Day so I probably should have waited till then but having watched it I wanted to go ahead and proceed with this review he hears something as he pulls off to the side of the road and then sees a strange woman at his passenger window she's saying something but he can't quite make it out and it's pretty unnerving for something that happens within the first like five minutes of the movie and he gets to the radio station that he works at where he's the morning host and works alongside with Sydney Breyer, who's played by Howell, and she's the main producer of the show that he works for. And then Laura Ann Drummond, who is uh, Georgina Riley. Now I get the idea that he was a former big time host, but for whatever reason he's now at the smaller station and he's not overly happy about it. Now you really get this sense because he's pretty rude to be honest. Especially when he's talking about some local people who have some issues with their drinking and he just blatantly calls them out on the air and Sydney actually has to take him aside and tell him that yes, those people are alcoholics, but they're doing it the best that they can. So it really does establish that he's kind of an asshole. Things then take a turn when they go to their weatherman, Ken Loney, who is voiced by Rick Roberts. And he starts telling them about an incident where a large group of people are congregating outside of a doctor's office. They're attacking it and the people are dying and they have to cut away and Ken is actually very stress sounding and even Grant gets upset about this, but he gets really mad when a troop of singers come in with one of them played by the writer because he doesn't want to cut away from the story for some fluff piece that they're required to do and just gets really upset that they're not following the story. Now from this moment though, they do get Ken back on the phone a little bit later 
And then even the BBC gets involved asking them why the military is now in their town and if this is possibly a separatist type terrorist thing going on. Now this Grant to be back on the you know top of his game because he's the one that broke the story over the airwaves. But what we end up learning is that people are in like a zombie-like trance where they can't speak normal and start to attack those that are not infected. And it becomes trying to figure out what is wrong with them as it might or might keep them from not surviving what is going on. This is actually a film that's hard to recap without spoiling it. So I wanted to go a little bit vague in what I've given you so far and just kind of give you the main aspects to it. Writer and director don't really want to call them zombies. That's one of the things I found in the trivia about this. He actually wants to call them conversationalists. And I will get it a little bit that more here in a few. But I do like the twist of this is that this virus is being spread through language. Now what I really find interesting about this story is that it is told through us through call-ins to this radio program. And I like to take that we are hearing Grant along with the two women as they're trying to work out what is going on around them. Also while trying to transmit the information out to others. What makes it interesting though is that it is all predicated on language and we literally have a forum where it is only talking where people are trying to convey this information. Even brought up to Grant that since language is the way that it's transmitted, why is he continuing to talk? And he has a moral dilemma where he realizes this, yet I believe his ego is too much where he continues to do what he's doing because that's the only thing he knows. I will say this has a contained feel to it that makes it very claustrophobic and I was really down for that as it really got my anxiety going. Now referring to my anxiety, I think that it's paced really well also. I think it works well in establishing our main three characters as well as their different personalities. So I do think we get three distinct things here. I've kind of already talked about Grant's a jerk. He thinks he's more important than what he is, but I still feel for him. Then you have Cindy who has grown up in this town from what I gather and she knows the people and wants to do the job the right way. And it's also interesting is that Laura Ann is a former soldier served in Afghanistan, I believe the film says. So we do get a little bit of that there, which I thought was interesting. And then she kind of signs board with Grant in some of the things that are going on, but she also has a sense of duty, so it also makes it where she doesn't necessarily like to overstep her bounds with Cindy. Now, going back to like I was saying how I got my anxiety going, I was actually watching this with my girlfriend and she also said the same exact thing. There's a lot of subtle things that happen and it just gets more and more unnerving as this group ends up getting trapped inside the station and their program is literally drawing the infected to them. It's making it though where they want to get this information out, but it also could be the death of them, which I kind of already said as well. Uh, some of the things I've already kind of also brought up as well is that Grant has that weird duality of being a journalist trying to get the news out, you know, doing the right thing, but then he also becomes how far were you willing to go to put your own life on the line to do this and how much of that is his own selfish needs. Uh, Sydney was good as being his rival. I don't think they actually hate each other. They do bump heads a lot, which I also found was interesting that McHattie and Howell are both actually married in real life. So I think that gives it almost a more natural feel that they know how to press each other's buttons. So I think it actually works well for their characters. Um, as I was kind of already saying as well, Riley is solid as the one being caught in the middle of the two. We also get to meet this Dr. Mendez who the doctor's office that he gets referred to earlier is the one that is being attacked. And he's actually the doctor who gets out to this radio station later. And he is played by Harant Alanak. I thought he did really well. What I also find interesting about this is that the effects that we get, there's not a lot of them, but what we get are good. There's a sequence with Laurel Ann that just really made me cringe with what she does. And I'll go a little bit more into that here because I'm going to do a little bit of a spoiler talk, but I will state when that'll happen. We do get to see other people. They don't really have much look on them when they are infected. What I like, though, is they just start repeating things. And there's a moment where some of our characters get attacked, and they attack. While they're attacking, they say the same word that drew them to that person, which I thought was pretty interesting. Now, just my final thoughts are 
I enjoyed this film a lot. I thought the mystery of it's really good and building tension. If I do have any sort of drawback, I want to know more, and I don't think the film went far enough to give me that. And something else that I had a slight issue with is the military sends a transmission in French, and my issue ends up becoming if they don't want people to continue talking, why wouldn't they just cut off the radio station and not allow them to you know, continue to broadcast? That is something they could possibly do with the technology they have available to it. We also get, what does the responsibility of media to have to not glorify what is happening with the duality of needing to do their job where they get this information out to everybody? So I do think that's an interesting aspect here, which I kind of brought up a little bit earlier with Grant, where he wants to continue on with the story, but when faced with, should we stop relaying this information or not, he decides to keep going, even if it could mean their demise in the end. I really like this idea of this virus, though, and how it gets transmitted. I'm not sure everyone will enjoy it as much as I did, especially if you're somebody that really needs a lot of action. This moves a little bit faster pace than a slow burn, and coming in at about 93 minutes, it really flew by for me, and it gets really tense for sure. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you that my rating of this is going to be an 8.5 out of 10, as I'm now going to transition over to some of my spoiler talk. Alright, now what I wanted to talk about for spoilers is... I was reading up some trivia about this as the writer and director had some and somebody must have heard it somewhere and put it on IMDb where there's three stages to this virus where the first stage is you get infected by hearing a certain word which I think is actually kind of interesting. The Dr. Mendez actually brings this up at some point where there's a word that you get hung up on. What we see here is that Cindy starts to have this issue where Things she's trying to say get jumbled up and they're almost like a broken record where they get stuck on a word or a phrase and just keep repeating it over and over and over again. And from the next stage is they start to get frustrated because they can't get their words out. They can't convey what they're trying to say. And then the third stage is that they just get so violent that when somebody says something, they get locked in on them. And there's a section in this film where they're doing the obituaries and they're pretty much just telling you this person killed these people or this person before taking their own life. And there's also a spot where we hear that Ken is next to somebody who is infected and he's trying to talk to them, but they're crying like a baby. And that's where it clicked to me where it almost feels like here, how when a child will throw a tantrum basically they can't get out what they're trying to say, the person, these infected people are doing that exact same thing it seems like, where they can't convey what they're trying to so it gets them into a murderous rage. The movie doesn't really convey a whole lot of this and I wish it could have done a little bit more, but because it went with this War of the Worlds type thing where it's told by the radio broadcast, which I think is great. I think that's wonderful in the idea that you don't get to actually see it playing out, you just get the reactions of people as they're listening to it play out, and it makes it quite terrifying. I'm just a story-driven guy, so when I hear stuff like that, I really want to know more, where I'm actually probably going to read this novel and the rest of the trilogy, because I do just want to know more about it. Going from that as well, um, I kind of wanted to bring up a thing with Laurel Ann. We see her get infected, and it becomes a question of if they can read lips, which I thought was pretty cool. But with Laurel Ann... She is locked out of the booth, so she can't actually hear the people, but she knows that they went into there and they heard them go into there. Where we see her start banging her head on the window, and then as she's going at it, we see her face just get completely gnarled up from what she's doing to it. And something else I read in the trivia about this is it almost seems like the virus is trying to get out of them like there's a child stuck in your body and it wants to get out so her lips get all mangled up which I thought was a great effect it looked pretty unnerving and I'm not even necessarily sure if she ends up dying because Dr. Mendez states that they have to have somebody to focus in on to kill because they heard them speak well she ends up vomiting up a lot of blood and just whatever came out of her system at that point and she lays down on the ground I could have swore I saw her eyes move and I think my girlfriend thought she saw her breathing so I don't know if she actually dies or not and that almost makes me feel like these people aren't actually zombies that they're more infected people because of the fact that they don't die 
they just get infected with this and become something. So I put this more in the vein of like a 28 days later. And something else I thought was interesting is that the English language is what is infected. So in a point in the movie, they start speaking in French and it doesn't affect them. So they're able to continue to communicate even though even though Grant doesn't know a lot of French, but he knows a little bit where where Cindy does know how to speak French pretty fluently. So I think that's all I really wanted to have here for the spoiler section. If you have any sort of theories or anything that I might have missed, if you want to reach out to me either via email or on social media so we can kind of chat about it, I would really like to because this one stuck with me after I watched it and I definitely want to know as much as I can physically possibly know about it because I was that much interested in it for sure. So now what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you to the trailer to the next feature review. I just wanted to wish you a Merry Christmas. I'm giving a dinner at the house. Just a few folks from the farm. I'd like you to be there. Ring up your wife and see if she'd care to join us. It could be arranged for one employee to receive a Christmas bonus this year, two candidates, one enviable new role. One of you will become expendable. I was hoping there'd be games tonight. You're up for this rather unorthodox job interview. This is wrong on so many levels. We have got our eye on you. Ho, ho, ho! Stop it! Stop it! Get away from him! And my second featured review is going to be the Into the Dark episode for December, which is a nasty piece of work. This is directed by Charles Hood, written by Paul Soder. It stars Molly Hagen, Natalie Hall, Kyle Howard. It is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting at a 6.7 on IMDb, and it is sitting on a 3.1 on Letterboxd. And the synopsis is, the boss of a private equity company invites a couple of his employees over to a Christmas party that turns out to be an intense competition for a promotion. Now, when I signed up for Hulu, Into the Dark was something that was part of the decision. Even though I've only seen three of the episodes thus far, I plan on eventually to check them all out. I just haven't got around to it as of yet. Now, I was trying to find a second film for this double feature, and I'm definitely going to go see the remake to Black Christmas like I had said on the previous episode, but I think I'm actually going to push that back to the next week's episode. But I had heard an interview with Julian Sands, who also is in this, on the Shockwaves podcast, so I decided that I'm a big fan of him that I would go ahead and check this out. Now we start this off with Ted, who is played by Kyle Howard, returning to work. Now this is broken up into six different chapters, with the first one being to show initiative and Ted went to get his boss's golf clubs when he heard that he wanted to get a round in the problem is that he brought the wrong ones and he is mocked by not only his boss who is Steven played by Sands but also his rival co-worker Gavin played by Dustin Milligan Ted snaps and uses one of them on a mirror in the bathroom we then shift over to the Christmas party Ted is anxiously waiting to see if he's gonna get a bonus and Steven finally reveals that they're not doing them this year. Now I am going to break in here a moment to say he does make a joke that he, that since they need to tighten up the waists and they're not going to give a corporate bonus, they're not going to give anybody with the company a bonus. And he does make a joke about, in lieu of cash, not giving them the jelly of the month, playing on the fact that Christmas Vacation, that is a major plot point for that film. So I did find that to be a little bit comical. Now. Ted is on the phone with his wife and decides he's going to confront his boss. Steven is already out on the balcony, and then Ted comes out and stares at him. Looks like he's contemplating throwing him over, and we've seen that he has a little bit of a temper problem already, but he has stopped when Steven invites him as well as his wife over for dinner that night. And before they separate here, he reveals that there's going to be a new program that he wants to discuss there. Heading over to this party, we get to meet Ted's wife, who is Tatum played by Angela Serafin. 
she isn't on the same level in that she's actually a mediator for, I believe, for divorces. So she's more of a working class businesswoman. And Ted is concerned about the earrings that she chose. And she tells him that he needs to put away his cynicism and sarcasm for the night as it tends to get him in trouble. And she's convinced that the people are going to meet are going to end up loving her and how she's dressed. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to make it sound like she's dressed like super outrageous. She just has these dangly, a little bit gaudy snowflake earrings. Somebody of the wealth and power that we've seen about Steven, he could mock her for it especially because he doesn't seem to have that filter to stop himself. Well, when they arrive, they get a better idea of the situation. The party is being hosted by Steven and his wife, Kiwi, who's played by Hagen. And the other guests are Gavin and his wife, Missy, played by Natalie Hall. And as they're before they go inside, Ted believes he sees someone in an upper window as he sees the curtains moving. But Steven assures him that there's no one else in the house. Now, this turns into a game that gets progressively worse and worse as Ted and Gavin compete for this promotion. But the problem is, there really isn't one. What they're getting at here is the idea is that one of them will no longer be with the company, so the other will have their salary doubled, so the stakes get higher and higher as Steven and Kiwi play these games that pit the two employees against each other as well as the spouses against each other, and even the spouses against within their own couple. Now I will say, I kind of had a gist of the idea from the interview with Sands, and I kind of thought it wasn't a new concept. The first thing that popped into my head as I was watching this was the film from a couple years ago, Would You Rather. Now that is more of a game of like truth or dare, where that one goes much more extreme than this one does, but we get the general concept here of it does get more and more difficult as they go. But I will say the overall feel of this was a bit off for some reason. Kiwi and Steven make it awkward of how they speak to each other, which I do like that uncomfortability, especially because I think it throws off the other two couples that are there with them. But it does get a bit played out, and I will also have to say that there's some random comedy spread throughout that I don't know if it really works. Like, Gavin's supposed to be not that intelligent, and he just says some really dumb things. Now, I will say is that if I was in their position, I would awkwardly laugh, especially when Kiwi and Steven are going at it. But just some of the things that this film tries to go to to play up the comedy, I just it didn't land with me. So it also kind of hurts the tension for me because it takes me out of what I'm watching. I will say that the editing is good for the film overall, though. It doesn't mess around and waste time. It gets a runtime less than 90 minutes, and we get introduced to our characters as well as to the game pretty early on. And we get like a general introduction to the characters, but then the more and more that they play this game, the more that we actually learn about them and see how far they will go in order to get this promotion. And I will say, I actually dug how this ended up. It wasn't what I was expecting, and I'm actually really happy they went the way that they did because the character that ends up getting the most out of this it's probably the one that was treated the worst throughout it too. And it's really fitting for this character actually to get what they did. And I just love that that person had the amount of growth that they end up having, especially because like I said, wasn't expecting it to go there. And I would have to say this film's deeper meaning that they're kind of exploring here is that the rich and powerful really don't play by the same rules. It's kind of fitting that in this episode I also watched American Psycho, which falls into the similar vein of this. Because this couple literally is just toying with these families, playing with their emotions, playing with their morals, seeing how far they would go for you know this extra money or for the extra power and everything like that. It's just interesting because I don't feel like power couples like this really ever want somebody that works under them to get to the same level as them, even though this game is really talking about opening up a new executive position for somebody. It just seems like they're bored in their lives and they want to see these people pit against each other for their own amusement. And it's kind of sick if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, but it can be enjoyable to watch being played out you know, on the screen. And as for the acting, I thought Hagen was really good as loudmouthed wife here. I love that she's constantly going after her husband for being impotent, which is ironic is that the position that he's in is the head of this major corporation. Now, 
I kind of see a parallel here with you know some of the most powerful men in our country having similar things like this are you know facing similar ailments and they use their power their position of power as a way to compensate so it definitely makes sense there I thought Natalie Hall fit well as a ditzy blonde who probably is used to the position that she's in I wouldn't be surprised they don't actually say it but I wouldn't be surprised if she's from money and that's what she expects from her husband is to have that same type of lifestyle now she does get tested in a way that made me feel horrible for her because I don't think anybody in should be you know subjected to what she does but this is something that Steven is you know using to try to test these people to see what their limits are I did like her performance in dealing with it though because it definitely felt realistic um, I really liked Howard here I see myself in him a little bit in that I can be extremely sarcastic even when I'm trying not to be and I'm pretty cynical in my nature when it comes to work or you know just things around me in the world and I feel like I would act very similar to him if I was put in this position Milligan plays the guy who isn't very good at his job and probably doesn't deserve it but he's really good at throwing others under the bus to you know get ahead and I also think he's a really good ass kisser and what I really like though is we get his character deconstructed to see that he is portraying a facade even though it is ruining him because he thinks he's going to get ahead regardless. Sands is just a legend of an actor. He's, like I said, a major selling point to why I saw this. I really like seeing him in this position as his accent really just embodies the character. And going even from that, his accent gives it somewhat of a arrogance to the role, which definitely is fitting for somebody in his position. I'm a big fan of Seraphin, even though I don't see her in a whole lot. She's quite subdued in this role and is the voice of reason a lot which comes from what her career is but I also love that she has the best change of all the characters as well that'll take me to the effects of this which I thought were really good we don't get a lot if I'm gonna be honest but they do seem to be practical and what they're really good at is hiding them and just giving us a glimpse which if you know anything about me I think that's the best thing to do sometimes because for me at least, my imagination is going to think the worst, so if you just give me a glimpse, that's exactly what I'm going to think happened. Uh, the blood looked real, and the wounds also looked pretty realistic. It is shot very well as also, which a lot of that goes back to the framing to help build tension, especially with things that are happening behind certain characters, and it goes back to the use of effects as well, is that they frame it well to kind of hide if it's not going to look great. Now with that said, this film doesn't have the most original story, but I do think it does some things really well. Working in an office, I've contended with coworkers for promotion, so I get that side, you know, on a personal level. Seeing them push as they are is quite creepy, because you would never expect to do something like this for a promotion. I think the acting helps to bring this to life. The pacing I did have some issues with, as there's just an uneven feel, and I think that goes back to the humor even though if I was in the situation, I probably would laugh at some of these things just because in awkward situations, that's what I do. I think the running time was good. Uh, there's not a lot in the way of the effects, but the what we do looked good and it's framed well for, you know, to hide some of that as well as to build tension. The soundtrack didn't necessarily stand out for me, but it does fit and it does give it that Christmas vibe. Overall, I would say this is a solid installment with some minor issues. I would rate this above average if I'm going to be honest. So I'm going to come in at a 7 out of 10 with this. And I don't really have any spoilers to uh, you know kind of go into here. Although it does explore things with the rich and powerful, I don't think there's a whole lot of subtext outside of that. So I'm going to go ahead and take you to one last musical break before I end out the show.
All right, I want to go ahead and thank you for listening to episode number six here of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Now, just to close out the show, you can listen to this at the moment on Anchor and Spotify where it'll appear just by itself, but I will include the RSS feed in the notes if you want to go ahead and subscribe to that on a different podcatcher that you know you regularly use. If you want to get a hold of me, any sort of feedback or anything like that, you can email me at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of my written reviews, which I will have for every thing I talk about on the podcast, that is at horrorreview.webnode.com. If you want to follow me on Facebook and become friends, I am David Garrett or David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can find me at Buckeye from Mish. Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. My Instagram is David OSU87. I do have a flick chat. Um, it's kind of died off for a little bit there at the moment, but I would be more than willing to, you know, chat with you over there if you'd like. And that join code is Journey with a Cinephile. And I know this week I was supposed to review the new Black Christmas. But since it came out on Friday and I did catch it opening night, I'm going to go ahead and make that one of my featured reviews for the next episode on number seven. And I actually think I'm going to be reviewing Eli, which came out earlier this year, and there was a lot of buzz on it on Netflix. So I'm probably going to go ahead and check that out as my other featured review. Um, but that you know could be subject to change with just availability or if anything else catches my fancy. I want to thank you again for listening, and this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.